Ghost is in this room. I want you to hear me. Where it's appropriate, I want you to take your neighbor by the hand. Fear keeps us from exercising faith. Most of the dimensions that we never walk into are because of fear. I want you to take your neighbor by the hand all over this house. And I want you in the spirit to begin to cast out fear. I'm telling you, God can do absolutely anything. I said God can do anything. For there is nothing that is impossible to them who believe. I wish somebody would release a little faith in this house. you turn around and high five your neighbor and say the devil's about to have a real bad night amen why don't you greet one another on your way back to your seats amen how many believe that the Lord is going to do something wonderful in this room tonight amen you have your Bibles, the book of 1 Samuel's, where I'll take my text. 1 Samuel chapter 10, it is indeed an honor for my family and I to be a part of this wonderful convention. I do give honor to all of your leaders, past and present. Brother Davidson, Brother Roberts, this district board extending us the honor and then of course this youth team led by Brother Roberts and Brother Adam Maddox to which we are grateful for the invitation to be here the accommodations and the wonderful Alabama hospitality is unparalleled and it is a delight to be in your fellowship this weekend amen amen I walked through and I was greeted the last time I preached this meeting you also had wonderful leadership, and that was Brother 
uh, Sean Meeks, I believe, and I saw him tonight. Amen. And lo and behold, the good secretary that year was a man by the name of Michael Thomas. Amen. who has now moved on to lead our fellowship at General Youth Ministries. And we are just delighted to see these good folks in Alabama tonight. Amen. And so it's an honor to be here. My family is here. My wife, Natalie, Mallory, Rhett, and Knox. And the beautiful accommodations and basket, they just went crazy when they saw it. And so we just appreciate your kindnesses. Amen. How many of you glad to be at Youth Convention? Amen. I will say just to preface my comments tonight that there are some times you walk into forums to speak and you feel like that where you're headed and where their worship team is headed is not even on the same planet. And so it takes a few minutes to get it all in the right order. And I am grateful for uh, worship leadership that finds the presence of the Lord and takes us there. Amen? And so I commend this worship team tonight for leading us, ushering us right into the presence of the Lord. Amen. First Samuel chapter 10 and verse number 1. Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? Verse 6. And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy with them and shalt be turned into another man. Verse 24. And Samuel said to all the people, See ye him whom the Lord hath chosen, that there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, God save the king. God's anointing is never misappropriated. When God calls a man or woman for his purpose, God knows what he's doing. When God anointed you, young person, young adult, hyphen, man, woman, boy, or girl, God knew what he was doing when he called you. God never makes a mistake. God never fails. God never wrung his hands, looked in the mirror and questioned himself and said, what was I thinking? God knew what he was doing. When you heard that gentle voice, when God whispered those affirming words in your ear, God knew what he was saying and he never takes it back and he never fails and he never made a mistake.
And so it is in our text this evening that God knew what he was doing when he called Saul to be the king. Brother Maddox, when he commanded the prophet to uncap the oil and pour it on Saul and say, for the Lord hath anointed you. God knew what he was doing. What brings us to the tragic end of Saul's life is that Saul misinterpreted what God called him to be. He's called. He's anointed. He is God's man. But the crisis that arises out of his life is because of the misinterpretation of his purpose. The Lord will help me for just a few moments. I want to preach to you on this subject, the tragedy of misplaced purpose. The tragedy of misplaced purpose. Would you put your Bibles down, lift your hands to heaven, and let's invite the Lord to speak all over this house. We are grateful that we serve a God who is able. Praise God. Speak all over this house. And we give you glory and honor and thanksgiving. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Samuel the prophet. A man born from adversity. He is the product of a barren woman's prayer request. Eli will openly rebuke Hannah in the temple as she struggles to eke out the words of her request. Mislabeled as a drunken woman, Hannah clarifies her request to the seer of Israel. If God, she said, would grant me my petition. I will give my son back to the Lord that he may serve him in his temple all the days of his life. Samuel, the product of that prayer, will learn the voice of God and will mature into perhaps the greatest prophet of the Hebrew people. Samuel never missed. And not a word fell to the ground from his lips. And from Dan to Beersheba, he was established to be the prophet of the Lord. Samuel never missed. It's in this context that Saul meets Samuel in their first encounter. Saul is there to solicit the help of the prophet as he endeavors to recover the straying livestock from the family farm. Saul meets this prophet that he can't even identify at their initial meeting. And there he is instructed of the Lord. And Samuel takes a vial of oil and pours the anointing oil on Saul's head and states, For God hath anointed you to be the captain 
of the Lord's heritage. God knows what he's doing when he anoints a man or woman. It's 1 Samuel 9 where the Lord begins to, through the words of the man of God, give a little insight into perhaps the purpose or the reasoning behind his calling of Saul. For there was not a goodlier man in all of Israel. Transliterated from its original context, it means that Saul was the most appropriate, intellectual, and most valuable man in the nation. God chose Saul. He chose the best that the nation had to offer. He chose for his brilliance. He was the most appropriate choice. The most valuable man in all the nation armed with both propriety and intellect and now he has the fresh smell of oil on his brow from the anointed hands of the prophet who never missed. Samuel never missed. And yet, We see the tragedy of the life of the man that God called and anointed and positioned with purpose. The crisis that will arise is because he interprets differently than God intended what his calling is. Hear me somebody. God never called Saul to be a king. In fact, throughout the Holy Writ, where Saul is referred to by God as being a royal, is when he is revoking the kingdom from him. God never called him to be the king. God called him to be the captain of the Lord's heritage. Let me stop right here and just say this parenthetical statement is the misplaced purpose of Saul's life. The misplaced purpose of Saul's life is that God never called him to be a king. He called him to be a battle-ready defender of the Lord's heritage. Can I help somebody in this house? Captain is not a title of royalty. Captain is the title of a warrior. I feel like saying to this generation that there are still some things that are worth fighting for. Some things are worth fighting for. We are living in a generation who would rather choose diplomacy than a battle. We would rather sit down and work out the words to some diplomatic approach to our enemy rather than unsheathing our sword and getting in the middle of the battle for something that God has promised to all of us. There are some things that are worth fighting for. Our doctrine.
doctrine is worth fighting for. I said our doctrine is worth fighting for. Evangelicals on numerous theological fronts are debating as to whether repentance is even necessary in salvation today. For to require repentance for salvation is to remove faith from being an act of faith alone, they say. But I would remind you that it is still required in every salvific experience to repent of your sin. through immersion in the name of Jesus is still required for salvation. For neither is there salvation in any other. For there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You still have to receive the Holy Ghost. Evidence by speaking with tongues. For by one spirit are ye all baptized into one body. If you're in the body, you gotta have the spirit. Some things are worth fighting for. is worth fighting for. Jude 1.3 said, contend for the faith. We've become far too diplomatic that we would rather sit down at a table and eke out the terms of a treaty rather than contend with an enemy who would like to steal your faith. I'm telling you, we're part of the greatest church that God ever put together. I wish somebody in this generation would be as proud that you are an apostolic. I wish some young lady would throw back your head and walk down the hallway of your school and you would be as grateful that God allowed you to have a revelation of faith. I don't know what the world's going to do, but I will tell you this, your faith is worth fighting for. You can't be baptized just any way. And you can't come to salvation just any way. And you can't worship just any God. And you can't live by just any standard. There are some things that are worth contending for. I start feeling at home and it gets bad quick. The Bible said in Revelation that the Lord had an issue with a church not who had the behaviors of Jezebel. Not who dressed like Jezebel. Not who had the actions of Jezebel. Not 
who caused themselves to be ornate in the manner that Jezebel was. Not, not that they looked like her or sounded like her or even met the specifics of who she was in her character. Here's the problem he had with the church. He said, you tolerate her. And as far as I am concerned, your toleration of that spirit makes you as guilty as if you possessed it yourself. He said, you ought to contend for the faith. Can I help some youth group in this church? There are some things that should not be allowed in your youth group. But it's going to require you to contend for the values. You need to run it off. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 27 The writer said, neither give place to the devil. That's King's English. You know what the modern translation says? Run the devil off. Here's what I come to preach about. There's some of you in this room who need to stop tolerating the things that are trying to control you. You need to run him off. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And when you repented of your sins, you went through the baptism of waters in Jesus' name. And you received the power of the Holy Ghost. You have the authority to run the devil off. You take dominion over fear. You take dominion over depression. You take dominion over anxiety. You run the devil off. You have no place. Let me tell you, you tolerate too much stuff. You hear this preacher? You tolerate too much stuff. You tolerate in the darkness of your room some enemy coming and perching on his lair beside your ears in the darkness of the night where it's you and a pillow and a few shadows and he tells you what you will be and where you're going and what your decisions are going to be and you sit there and tolerate him. But I'm preaching to a generation that needs to unsheath the sword and say greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. I'm calling you to get in the fight. Contend for your lost family. Contend for your unsaved neighbor. Contend for the folks that you travel with. I'm skipping way ahead, but I'm going to tell you, my dad, what we would say here in the South in our love for Southern colloquialisms is that my dad was rougher than a night in jail. I'm telling you, my dad never seen a fight he didn't like. 
My dad sat me and my brother down one day, and he said, now, boys, I'm going to tell you. When you go to the bar, be careful. He didn't ask if we were going. He said, when you go. Because he had just already accepted the fact that we were going to end up with that generational curse in our life that had been in his. Well, guess what? I don't go to bars. You know why? Because in the middle of the battle, I decided to run the devil off. You don't have to live under a generational curse. You don't have to fornicate. You don't have to commit adultery in your marriage. You don't have to be an alcoholic. You don't have to fall to drug addiction. Neither give place to the devil. Get your sword out and engage your enemy. Greater is he that is within you than he that's in the world. He said, now, son, let me tell you what you do when you get in a fight. He said, never. He said, when you go to the bar, you don't ever pull in, you back in. Because whether somebody's shooting at you or the police are after you, you got to get out quick. Always ask for a fork, never a spoon. Because you can sharpen your fork and turn it into a weapon. And he said, don't you ever back a man in a corner without an escape route. Because if you back in a man in the corner and he can't run, he will kill you. You hear this, preacher? I walked to the desk in this meeting. And there are some of you in this room that's been backed in a corner. You've been fighting for your life and the enemy's cornered you and he thinks he has you. But I'm telling you, all you have to do is fight. All you have to do is fight. All you got to do is take out the sword. All you got to do is step right back in the arena. All you have to do is refuse to give up because the only battles you lose are the ones you refuse to fight. But if you get in the middle of the battle, God will make sure that you are victorious. There's some things worth fighting for. Our doctrine's worth fighting for. But unity's worth fighting for. Unity in the body. Jude wrote it this way. He said, if you contend for the faith. He said, I want you to fight for unity. It almost appears to be a dichotomy of terms. But that's how important that unity is. Let me tell you, it's not you versus the other people in your youth assembly. We are in this battle together. Hear me. You ought to celebrate one another's successes like you do your own. 
You ought not sit around in the corners of your youth chapel and say, that ought to be me singing the special. I don't know why they pick her every time. That ought to be me preaching the fiery five. I don't know why they pick him to do it all the time. Well, it may be because of who his grandfather is or his mother or some attachment they've had long term to the church. Can I help you? God elevates in the season that you need to be elevated. I'll tell you what you do. You celebrate the success of your brother and your sister and you keep fighting in the corner of anonymity that you're living in and when your season comes, God will extract you out of anonymity and he'll put you on a platform and celebrate your anointing for the rest of the world to see. that we used to belong to because he jealous of us he don't kill his brother because he hates him he kills his brother because he wants to control God because the Bible said that when God looked at their sacrifices that he wouldn't even look at Cain's sacrifice. You know why he wouldn't look at it? I understand the relevance to the blood sacrifice. But the three examples that are quoted in both John and Jude about Cain's sacrifice says nothing about blood. But all three of them refer to it being the first fruits or the best or the use of imperfect works. Cain kills his brother because he don't want to change his sacrifice. And rather than change his sacrifice, he would rather limit the options of what God had to bless. And if God can kill his brother, then God, if, if Cain can kill his brother, then God has no other choice than to elevate me. So rather than get in alignment and in the right posture with God, I'd rather kill my brother. So God has to bless me and not him. You hear this preacher, we ought to contend for one another. Let me tell you why that folks sit around in their corners and they kill one another with a gossiping tongue. It's because they're trying to control God. But don't you dare in your blood thirst and lust to be elevated kill God's kid in an attempt to eliminate what God can bless so that you can be blessed instead of or in lieu of your brother. 
I'm telling you, if you'll live in a life, if you'll be faithful, if you'll walk righteous, if you'll honor God, if you'll love your brother, if you will honor your sister, if you will celebrate one another's successes in your season, God will lift you from the shadows of anonymity and he will anoint your brow with authority. is anointed and called he has great purpose he has God's hand on him Saul would rather choose the route of diplomacy than engage his enemy for the valuable things that should be contended for. Saul, and I hurry, will circumvent the office of the prophet and will offer his own burnt offering because Samuel has been delayed on his journey. If I could say this, you better learn to wait on God. If there's anything that your generation must adhere to and find as valuable in the hour that you live is that God does not work on your timetable. We work on God's timetable. We oftentimes say we want God's will. But as valuable as God's will is God's way. And we cannot have God's will our way. We must have God's will God's way. And sometimes the prophet may be delayed on his journey. But if he is, you wait. Don't you dare put your hands on a sacrifice that you are not anointed to light the fire under. You wait on God. Time's a tattletale. With time comes revelation. It will reveal the difference between the tare and the wheat. It will identify the fool from the wise. And it will expose the heart of a wicked king who has deviated from the course that he has been called to. You better wait on God. Saul. Saul is two years to four years into his appointment before he ever builds his first altar. We need to be an altar building generation. An altar is a place where you die. You cannot live on the altar Remember what I said, God's will, God's way. It's not God's will our way, nor is it the favor of God that comes on what I desire. It is my desires getting in alignment with what God favors. 
know, it occurred to me as a pastor and a leader that if we're not careful in an attempt to make everyone feel good about their self, that we'll take the Word of God and we will move its interpretation wherever it needs to go to accommodate the changes. The reason that the Christian community does not have theological purity is because we've taken the interpretation of the Word of God and we've taken it so many different directions to accommodate the change in philosophies in our culture. And so we move around the Word to accommodate wherever the people are. But it occurred to me one day, elders, that while I'm out following the assembly around and changing the interpretation of the Word to accommodate whatever place they're in where they can feel more comfortable living however it is that they desire to live, that when they wake up from the slumber they're in, when they, when they come to their senses in the hog pen and they decide to come back home, they're not going to have anywhere to come home to because I've been moving all these years to try to find them. You hear this preacher? You hear this preacher? You better wait on God. And you better find where God is. And you better align with God's favor. You align with God's plan and God's man. And in your season, God will show up and elevate you in a way that everyone can see and acknowledge. The tragedy... The tragedy of Saul's life is that he refuses to build altars. Altars are places where we die. The Bible said, present yourselves a living sacrifice. The problem with living sacrifices is that we keep jumping off the altar when the heat gets turned up. It's in Matthew 21. But Jesus, we see this character of his become something that is challenging to the reader because Jesus walks in the temple and begins turning over tables and whipping people out and calling out hypocrisy and he becomes outraged in his behavior and responses. And most of us say, oh my, my goodness, that's not that little sheep herding Jesus that has his arm around the lamb while the kids are gathered around his feet and kneel at his sandals. This, what, what happened to that guy? Jesus looks at them and said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. He's repeating from Isaiah. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. He later goes on to identify the thieves in Matthew 21. And it's both the buyer and the seller. Well, if thievery is only from the taker, and if it's just about mismeasurement, 
then why does he call both of them a thief? Now you hear this preacher. Because I don't think it has anything to do with the mismeasurement of money. It's because that the very act of exchanging and offering for a shekel is robbing the people of the gift of sacrifice. Let me tell you why you build an altar. Because if there's going to be fire on the altar, you have to give a sacrifice. And I'm preaching to a generation who would like to drive by the church and flip a shekel in the hands of a man who has combed through the lamb and decided whether it's a perfect or an imperfect sacrifice. And when we do, we too often come to church with an offering, but we have no sacrifice. And when he called it thievery and when he identified both the buyer and the seller as thieves, what he's saying to them is you're giving offerings but you have no sacrifice. You hear me? God doesn't just want your offering of praise. He wants a sacrifice of praise. He doesn't just want an offering of your money. He wants what costs you something. God doesn't just want your living to be an offering. He wants you to give yourself as a sacrifice. And when you remove sacrificial giving from the church, you become a thief because God never intended the altar to be a place of offering. He intended it to be a place of sacrifice. said but now thy kingdom shall not continue the Lord has sought him a man after his own heart for the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee he revokes the kingdom because there are some things that Saul was called to that he refused to do. He refuses to align with the office of the prophet. He refuses to build an altar. The Bible said in 1 Samuel 15, And Samuel said, Have the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Rebellion is spiritual. You ever heard somebody say, I'd rather ask forgiveness than permission? Uh Uh-oh, I hear all those chuckles. There's a bunch of them in the room, aren't there? It's foolish. Because that's not what the prophet said. The prophet said, I'm glad we have mercy. And I'm thankful we have the blood of Jesus. But let me tell you what would be better. Just be obedient to the word of God. Just be obedient to the word of God. 
Because if you're not careful in your disobedience, you will become rebellious. You will become rebellious and you do what the New Testament identifies as heresy. And heresy is nothing more than self-doctrine. It's creating a doctrine that benefits you. That's what heresy is. Heresy isn't worshiping some false god out here and offering sacrifices to it. That's part of it. But heresy is creating your own doctrine to accommodate your own fleshly desires and thus being rebellious in being obedient to the Word of God. Rebellion spiritual. Simply put, it's the out-of-hand rejection of God. Come here, Brother Michael, help me. Yeah. I want everybody to be able to see you. I was looking at how fresh he looked, you know, how dressed he was. It occurred to me one day, and I'm getting ready to preach you happy today. Come here, give me just a moment. It occurred to me one day, Brother Maddox, that if you're called and you're anointed, you have God's purpose. But somewhere along the journey, you decide to stop fighting. You become diplomatic. You would rather sit down at the table and eke out the terms of a treaty with your enemy. You don't fight for unity and you don't fight for doctrine anymore. You would rather sit in your palatial estate in the lazy boy of your affluency and put the armor on another man that is smaller and less qualified and send him out to fight enemies rather than even though you are anointed and you are head and shoulders above all the rest. It's just easier to sit in your affluency and watch others do the fighting than to engage the enemy that you've been called to do battle with. What do you do? What do you do when you refuse to build altars? When you refuse to align with the man of God, the plan of God, and the call of God? What do you do? When you decide to rebel, build your own altars, circumvent the office of the prophet, the Bible says that Saul became appearance oriented he's standing he's standing in the field waiting on the tardy prophet and when the prophet shows up he said is that the bleeding Is that the bleeding of oxen I hear? Is that the lowing of cattle? Did not the Lord command you to slay all of the Amalekites? Don't you leave one thing living, not one man, boy, or girl. Don't you leave an oxen. Don't you leave a lamb. You burn everything in the city. And don't you let one thing be breathing when I show up to look at the battlefield. Saul is malaligned. 
And when the prophet shows up, you hear this preacher. When the prophet shows up, Brother Cheryl, he said, For the Lord hath taken the kingdom from you and has given it to a man who is more qualified than thee. Saul doesn't really have a rebuttal for the prophet's statement. He doesn't fall on his knees and say, No, please give me another chance. Can I have one more trip into the battlefield? Is it possible you could anoint me one more time? Could you just pray a prayer of repentance for me? He doesn't say any of that. He just said, I I get it. Would you just stand here by me? And would you offer a sacrifice of praise in front of the people? I know I don't have it anymore. But I sure want to look like I have something I no longer have in front of the people. God forbid that in the hour we live that we have become so indulgent in our own fleshly pursuits that we have forgotten what God called us to the battle that he anointed us for the weapons that he put in our hand the things that he has given us to articulate to our generation God help us that we become a church that has a form of godliness but denies the power thereof. God help us that we become a church who can look like the church, sound like the church, dress like the church, speak like the church, but we have no power. said that Saul becomes embittered by the maidens who are dancing in the street and they're celebrating and singing for David Saul has killed his thousands but David has killed his ten thousands it doesn't appear that Saul's mad that it's true because if Saul were angry that it was true he'd get out his sword and go fight those Philistines he's not mad that it's true he's just mad that everybody knows it he's just so appearance oriented that he cares that people think he look like something he's not you hear this preacher I want our youth groups to have everything we say it has I want every Holy Ghost filled apostolic young adult that's in this room to have every bit of power that this book says we have. That when that holy writ says lay hands on the sick and they shall recover, I want that authority and that dominion to rest on our generations just as it will as it did a generation before. I don't care what you look like. I don't care what you sound like. But what kind of authority do you have in your mouth? Stand to your feet all over this room. The old prophet, he finds him a ruddy, a ruddy lad. And his name's David. And David is the antithesis of everything that Saul is. How? 
How do you go from God's chosen, anointed, intellectual, head and shoulders above all the rest to the rejected who can't even coexist with anointing? Saul had it long enough to know what it was. And he can identify it when it walks in the room. But instead of celebrating it, he throws javelins at it. How? How do you go from the anointed, called, purposed, head and shoulders above all the rest, to a man who can't even sit in the same room? with someone who's anointed without taking a shot. Glad you asked. Because he lost his ability to confront his enemies, both internal and external. I'm done. But why do you send a lad in your armor when you're head and shoulders above everyone else in your armor? When you're called, you're anointed, and you are positioned to kill the king of Amalek. And the Bible said, when the prophet arrives, he said, what is King Agag still doing alive? And Agag gets nervous. And the Bible said, the prophet Samuel takes a knife out, and he carves Agag up in front of the host of Israel. Let me stop right here and just make this little statement. Don't call your preacher to kill an enemy God anointed you to kill. How many times have you showed up in the preacher's office saying, I need you to get this spirit off of me. I need you to fight this battle. I need you to take care of this problem. Why don't you find a closet and get rid of the enemy that you've been anointed to fight? We're not done. Saul's got an internal enemy. He's got a spirit. But he won't confront it. And he calls for a lyrist. And he brings a harp and he'll finger out a tune to drive the evil spirit away. Because he can not only confront external enemies, but he can't even confront the spirit that's come to antagonize him. He has to get David to play a tune so that the music can drive away the enemy. The antithesis of Saul is the man after God's own heart. And David never met a fight he didn't like. I like David. He's a bloody man. But I'm going to tell you, we often talk about how bloody his hands were and that he didn't get to build the temple, but there'd be no temple if it hadn't have been for the spirit of the warrior that was in his heart. Samson don't have peace if David don't have blood. Woo! 
I feel a little help in this house. And God wants some of you to get right out in the middle of the battle because you can't ever build a temple on land you don't fight for. You can't ever build a kingdom on land you won't fight for. Let me tell every young adult in this room, there isn't any schools that are showing up surrendering at the feet of righteous doctrine. There isn't any youth groups that run a hundred that are just showing up and throwing up their hands in defeat. There are no churches that are being surrendered to young anointings just because you showed up in a cute suit. There are no full-time ministry positions that are opening up just because you're cool. Let me tell you what happens. You step into those dimensions of authority because you fight for them. Solomon's going to build the wonder of the world because his daddy unsheathed the sword and got out among the Philistines and defeated the enemy that opposed him and was willing to bloody his hands with the tough challenge of the battle. You hear me? You will be victorious. You will be anointed. You will have spiritual authority. But it will not come without defeating the enemy. Sheba goes into the bed. He's got just a few words. I'm going to tell you, Brother Thomas, if it's my last words that I'm passing on to Mallory Rhett Knox, it's probably going to be something like, take care of your mama. Honor the Lord. Be careful. Have the right heart posture toward the Lord. He says all that, but not not before he dies. They're about to put him in the grave. They're feeling for his pulse. And he calls his young son Solomon, who has already been anointed to be the king. And here's what he says. Son, do you remember Joab? Yes, sir. Kill him. By the way, Solomon... Do you remember Shimei? God's going to give you wisdom on how to do it, but kill him. And the next word, and David was gathered unto his fathers. When we are introduced to David, we're introduced to David with a harp and a fight. And when David dies, he's still got a fight in his spirit. There's only one thing that marks the ministry of this man after God's own heart, and we know what it is. It's the adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. Anybody know why this man, this anointed man after God's own heart, commits the immoral act of adultery? Read it. And in the time, 
When kings go to war, David stayed home. The only miss mark on his ministry is when he laid down his sword and refused to get in the battle. I'm telling somebody in this room that the only battles you lose are the ones you refuse to fight. You just get right back in the middle of the battle. You go home to your little town. You walk right back into that house. You walk right through the fire of those temptations. And you take out your sword. And you get right back in the middle of the battle. They may not look like you. They may not sound like you. But they don't serve the God that you serve. Don't you dare give up. Don't you dare give in. Don't throw in the towel now. Don't you dare surrender in this hour. You just stay in the fight. Stay in the fight. Stay in the fight for the weapons of our warfare. They are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. My wife, my wife's over here. She's real sweet and timid. She's not like me. She called me. I was preaching. I was about to get on the subway and she said you're not going to believe what just happened in my car I said what happened she said I'm giving Sherry a Bible study she said she got in the car for me to take her home and said there was something started speaking out of Sherry she said really it scared me a little bit she said, I think more just caught me off guard. I didn't know what it was. She said, something started speaking out of Sherry and said, I will destroy you. If you don't leave me alone, I will bring chaos in your family. And I will destroy your church. I'm not going to go into all this. But that's where my wife is living the enemy don't bring to you your culture he always shows you the thing that you're most afraid of my wife said I looked over there she said the only thing I could remember babe in the moment she said when I was a little girl I'd get scared of the dark she said my dad said baby you got more power in the name of Jesus in your pinky finger than all the power that the enemy could possibly have she said, babe, I just did everything I knew to do. She said, I said, hold on a minute, Sherry. She said, you tell that spirit to come back. And she said, I just held up my pinky finger. And I said, let me tell you something. The Lord didn't move me all the way to Kansas City to deal with the likes of you. She said, I'm telling you right now. I will pray. I will fast. You will not bring chaos in my family. You will not destroy our church. And I will pray and fast until you are free. Sherry walked down to the altar and God baptized her with the Holy Ghost. 
Let me tell somebody in this room, I don't know what kind of battle you're in right now, but I'm telling you that if you will fight, you will win. You go home, you unsheath your sword, you fight off fear, you fight off anxiety, you fight off depression, you fight off doubt. You got everything you need to be victorious. This is the greatest hour of the church. Your church has got better days ahead. Your youth group is going to get bigger for the increase of its government. There shall be no end. Your greatest days are ahead, but you must fight. This is how I fight my battle. 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 This is how I fight my battle.
Jesus. 